In the late 1700s, early 1800s, according to the Flathead tradition, an old Indian couple lived in the Bitterroot Valley of western Montana. Although they were childless, they enjoyed a very happy but very simple life. When the wife died, the old man was so lonely that he decided to climb a high peak in the mountains to try to see the place to where his wife had gone. When he reached the top, he saw that there were even higher peaks beyond, and so he sat down to rest. Suddenly he had a vision of a man who told him to return to the valley and wait as a designated price for another message. So the old Indian climbed down into the valley, and there he had another vision. He was told that his wife was happy, but that she was where no one could go until the angel of death came to take him there. He was told he should live his life as best as he knew how and to wait for the coming of pale men who wore long black robes and spoke of the one almighty God. These men would teach them how to reach the place of happiness where God lived. The old man returned to his tribe and awaited the coming of the black robes. This old man may have very well been the flathead prophet named Shining Shirt. According to their tradition, Shining Shirt had a vision about the future, and he prophesied the coming of fair-skinned men wearing long black robes who would teach the Indians a new way of praying and a new moral law. Shining Shirt warned the flathead and their neighbors, the Ponderay, to not resist the black robes. Now, besides the fact that this pagan nation was expecting black robes to come, the flatheads also had a high standard of natural morality. A member of the Lewis and Clark expedition who passed through their territory in 1805 said, quote, The flatheads are the only tribe that has any idea of chastity. Close quote. A fur trader who had worked in Upper Columbia regions from 1812 to 1814 noted the flatheads had far more noble qualities than any of the other western tribes. They were honest, obedient to their chiefs, cleanly in their lodges and personal habits, and hated lying. Polygamy was almost unknown amongst them. The wives were excellent wives, or the women were excellent wives and mothers, and famous for their fidelity. Around 1816, a band of Catholic Iroquois Indians, Big Ignace and his 24 companions, left their village near Montreal and migrated eastward or westward from eastern Canada till they found themselves in western Montana. They were so warmly received by the Flathead Nation that they decided to join them. Big Ignace, the chief of this Iroquois band, was a man of great bravery and virtue, and this naturally made a big impression on his new brothers. When the Flatheads mentioned the prophecies of the Black Robes, Big Ignace told them that these mysterious men were the great black robes who wore long black gowns, carried crucifixes, said the big prayer, by which he meant the Mass, who did not marry and went around teaching people how to please God and how to be happy in the next life. He maintained that the Indian religion was false and that they were in danger of being thrown into hell. He taught the tribe the principal truths of our faith. He showed them how to do the sign of the cross, to say to our Father, to pray together in the morning and evening and observe Sunday, and to mark their graves with crosses. Every time Big Ignace would speak to his adopted brothers, he would finish by saying, quote, What I tell you is nothing 
compared to what the black robes know. Close quote. Over time, the desire to have a real black robe to instruct them became an obsession. In 1831, the Flatheads and their neighbors, the Nez Pierce, decided to send men to St. Louis to find a black robe. After an incredible journey, the very first thing they did when they arrived in St. Louis was go to a Catholic church and pray for success. Two of the men got sick and died, but not before receiving baptism. They were given a requiem and buried with full ceremonies. The surviving men left for home, but without a black robe, in the spring of 1832. In 1834, the Flatheads got excited when they learned a band of missionaries was coming to their tribe. But when they arrived, without black robes, without crucifixes, without the big prayer, and with wives, well, the Flatheads just weren't interested. What had happened, the Methodists in St. Louis had caught wind of their journeys down to St. Louis to get priests, and they thought they'd send guys out there and horn in on the action. The next year, another attempt was made by Protestant missionaries, but once more, the Flatheads were not interested. Big Ignace set off in 1835 on a third expedition, to, or a second expedition to St. Louis. Both the bishop and the Jesuits in St. Louis told Big Ignace they would send a priest soon, and so with those promises, Big Ignace headed back towards Montana. But on the way, he decided to spend the winter with a band of his people. And where were they? Well, church records from the olden days show that a group of Catholic Iroquois and Iroquois flathead mixed blood Indians that were getting worried by the delay in getting black robes to come out west immigrated from the Rockies and settled on the Missouri side right here in Kansas City. In February of 1834, two Iroquois flathead Indians were baptized. And in fact, the very first marriage recorded in the limits of what's now Kansas City uh, Missouri was that of two Iroquois Indians. Some are also living up by Leavenworth near the Jesuit mission to the Kickapoos. After he spent the winter, Big Ignace went back home expecting black robes. By 1837, no black robes had yet arrived in Montana. So Big Ignace led a third expedition for St. Louis, but in Nebraska, a Sioux war party jumped them and they were all killed and scalped which the Sioux themselves bragged about to traders at Fort Laramie. Another year and a half passed, and still no black robes had arrived in Montana. So in the summer of 1839, a fourth expedition sent out. Two of the Iroquois adopted by the Flatheads joined some Hudson Bay men who were going to St. Louis and canoed all the way to St. Louis. <clears throat> Excuse me. They met with the bishop had a long meeting, and he told them that he'd send a priest there the next year. The very next day after the meeting, one of the men took off from Montana to bring his people the good news. Now, he took off, even though it was the very end of October, and then he made what has to be one of the all-time incredible trips. In spite of the fact his horse gave out on him, and that he's facing cold and starvation daily, he traveled alone across the Great Plains and the Rockies in the dead of winter, across a country filled with hostile tribes. And he still made it into the Bitterroot Valley around the end of March with the great news that a black robe was finally coming. 
The chief sent ten men to go ahead and meet the black robe, while he followed behind with the rest of the people. Meanwhile, the other men spent the winter in Westport, waiting to guide the black robe to his people. And as Providence would have it, the black robe chosen for the Rocky Mountain mission was the great Jesuit Father Pierre de Smet. That's the same Father de Smet that had been a dear friend of St. Philippine de Chaine since 1823. And then to April, they left Westport with a party of traders from the American Fur Company heading up to the Trapper's Rendezvous on the Green River in western Wyoming. They arrived at the rendezvous at the end of June, and to their surprise, there amidst the crowd of mountain men and Indians, who were ten flathead braves, who were waiting to meet them. That Sunday, right there at the rendezvous, with the mountain men singing hymns in Latin and French, and the Indians singing in their native tongues, Father de Smet celebrated the first Mass in the Rocky Mountains, north of the Spanish possessions. He preached in French and English and spoke through an interpreter to the Flathead and Snake Indians. Since that time, that place has been known as the Prairie of the Mass, and it's marked on maps. You can, I just looked in my road atlas right before I came into Mass, and it's marked right in there. If you look near Pinedale, Wyoming, or Daniel, Wyoming, you'll see it marked right on your map. Father Smith left the rendezvous with his escorts and set out to meet the people. They traveled through Jackson Hole and over the pass in the Tetons, and there met up with some 1,600 flatheads, ponderays, and Nez Pierce, many of whom had traveled over 800 miles to meet him. 800 miles through the wilderness to meet a priest. He was led to the lodge of the great chief Big Face, who greeted him, saying, quote, This day the Great Spirit has accomplished our wishes, and our hearts are swelled with joy. Now, Father, speak, and we will comply with all that you will tell us. Show us the way we have to go to go to the home of the Great Spirit. Close quote. Think about that. Father, speak, and we'll comply with all you'll tell us. Show us the way we have to go to the home of the Great Spirit. Then Big Face actually tried to resign as chief and give Father Smet his authority. But Father Smet refused to become chief and told Big Face he'd only come to save souls. Using a mountain man as a translator, Father preached to them four times a day and had our prayers translated into their language. They were so eager to hear the word of God that they even toted out all their sick people and laid them close by so they wouldn't even miss a word of what Father was teaching them. At daylight every morning, one of the chiefs would ride through the camp shouting for everyone to get up because the black robe would soon be speaking. And he would tell the people, quote, Open your eyes. Address your first thoughts and words to the Great Spirit. Close quote. They began traveling through Montana, or towards Montana. After 15 days of teaching, Father Smet pulled out a medal of Our Lady and promised it to the first man who could recite, without any mistakes, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Creed, the Ten Commandments, the Act of Contrition, the Act of Faith, the Act of Hope, and the Act of Charity. We've all had more than 15 days. Well, no sooner did Father say this than a chief stood up and said, Father, your medal belongs to me, and it did. So Father made the chief his catechist, and he asked him to teach the tribes. 
In less than ten days, they all knew their prayers. On this trip, Father DeSmet actually baptized around 600 people, children who hadn't reached the age of reason, and old folks who might die before he had the chance to return. They traveled up to their hunting ground at the headwaters of the Missouri, which is near present-day Three Forks, Montana. And at the end of August, Father DeSmet announced that under obedience, he had to leave for St. Louis to bring back more missionaries and supplies. The sorrow of his Indians could not be consoled until he gave them a formal promise that he would return in the spring with more missionaries. Father DeSmet, quote, Morning prayers were said amidst the tears and sobs of the Indians, which drew tears from my own eyes, although I endeavored to control my emotions. I exhorted the tribe to serve the Great Spirit with fervor and avoid anything that might give scandal, dwelling once more upon the principal truths of our holy religion. And I gave them as their spiritual chief, an intelligent Indian I had myself carefully instructed. He was to replace me during my absence. Night and morning and every Sunday they were to recite prayers in common, and he was to exhort them to the practice of virtue. I also authorized him to privately baptize the dying and infants in case of need. With one voice, they promised to obey. With tears in their eyes, the Indians wished me a good and safe journey. Old Big Face arose and said, Black Robe, may the Great Spirit accompany you on your long and dangerous journey. Morning and night we will pray that you may safely reach your brothers in St. Louis. And we will continue to pray thus until you return to your children of the mountains. When the snows of winter will have disappeared from the valleys, and when the first green of spring begins to appear, our hearts, which now are so sad, will once more rejoice. As the meadow grass grows higher and higher, we will go forth to meet you. Farewell, Black Robe. Farewell. Now this is the first part of a two-part sermon. I kept trying to squish it into one, but I can't get it done. There's a whole treasure trove of religious truths here. Well, let's just consider a few things this morning. The Flatheads were a pagan nation located out in absolutely the middle of nowhere. Yet think about how God showed his love for them by sending them visions and then the Catholic Iroquois. Think about the incredible hardships and sacrifices they went through to get a priest. Think about the incredible value they placed on learning the faith. Think about their eagerness to know the truth and their eagerness to be saved. I think we should all really ponder this. We should try to see through the eyes of those flatheads what we have been given and all too often take for granted. We can get a tiny glimpse of how really blessed we are, how much God really loves us by giving us the true faith. We all know the devil's got a bumper crop, a Judas priest, and there's heresy and scandal everywhere. We know that, fine. You know, let's grant all that. But don't let that cause us to forget the incredible, breathtaking beauty of our religion. Let's not forget the incredible love that God has shown us by sending us priests, by giving us the sacraments, 
by giving us the knowledge we need to live correctly in this life and to get to heaven. Our holy faith is an absolutely priceless gift. It's absolutely priceless. And even if we have all eternity to ponder that in heaven, we won't even begin to understand the love God has for all of us and for each and every one of us. Our religion is the story of a love affair. It's always the story of a love affair. And he loved us first, and we don't deserve it.